Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I nearly screwed up by switching my alarm off in my sleep. In a few moments, we're going to be talking to The Guardian journalist Gary Young about his experiences covering the election from the middle of America. Um, but most of you did wake up in sufficient time to do the usual things I do after that before the podcast. I'll be talking to him about race, about violence, about what Donald Trump has to do to deliver to his supporters. He threw red meat to his base. I mean, so much red meat. I mean, they must have terrible kind of, you know, clogged arteries by now. And they're going to bust a vein if he doesn't deliver. And what he thinks is the real crisis facing the United States. What American working class need is a Marshall Plan. I mean, they're devastated. Black male life expectancy in D.C. is lower than male life expectancy on the Gaza Strip. I'm also joined by Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke because we need to talk about Europe as well. Things have been happening here. At the weekend, François Fillon won the nomination to be the Republican candidate for the French presidency. And this coming weekend, there are two votes taking place, one in Austria to select a new president between a candidate of the far right and a candidate of the left, a green candidate, a kind of microcosm of contemporary politics. And the really big event, which is the referendum in Italy, called by Matteo Renzi, on constitutional reform, but it's become much more than that. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But I just wanted to ask Helen and Chris one question before we turn to Gary Young, which is about France and Fillon. And I ask it because I genuinely don't know the answer, and I'd like to hear what they think. So Fillon is an establishment politician. He was French prime minister. He looks like a very, he's almost like a sort of caricature of a French politician of a certain generation. There's nothing unusual about him. And yet he looks like he fits this pattern that we've had of candidates almost coming from nowhere to sweep elections, including primary elections, which is what this was. A month ago, his chances were close to zero. Pundits had written him off, the famous betting markets, which we don't trust anymore, had him at something like eight to one to win this. And he didn't just in a month scrape through, he swept through. So in the final vote, he won more than two thirds of the vote. So my question is, is he an outsider candidate in the pattern that we've become used to? Or is he an insider candidate? Chris? I think he's an insider candidate. He's was Prime Minister for five years, not that long ago. And in various other ways, I, he fits the profile of a French insider politician. He, I don't think he's an enarch. I don't think he's a graduate of that tiny elite college of national administration for which so much of the political elite comes. So he may not be an insider's insider. But it seems to me to stretch credulity to present him as some kind of outsider in the way that some of these other politicians we've seen in recent months and years have been. What I wonder about is whether we really have a good grip on what the dynamics of these nationwide primaries are. They're relatively new in French politics. This was a pretty open contest. To take part, all you needed to do was to sign a declaration saying that you shared the Republican values of the centre and the right. Plenty of people who would like to vote socialist or for a left candidate in the presidential election will have taken part in that election to try to get the candidate they want or to try to maximise the chances of beating Marine Le Pen and so on. Most of those votes probably went to Juppé. But that reflects this broader issue, which is that this wasn't necessarily the typical electorate that takes part in these kinds of candidate selection exercises. And so it may not be so much that Fillon's an outsider, but that this kind of right-wing Catholic politics just has a lot more resonance in parts of France than we've tended to acknowledge over the last few decades. Helen, one American article in, in Vox, um, Vox.com, that was headlined, Who is Fillon? Trying to explain him to an American readership did that very conventional journalistic thing of describing what sounded like Donald Trump, a friend of Vladimir Putin, wants to shake up the establishment, has certain views that flirt with the religious right and so on, and said, but it's not Trump, it's Fion. It wasn't completely convincing to me, but they were trying to portray him as part of that pattern. Is that convincing at all? I'm not really convinced by that, because aside from anything else, I think that it's a mistake to think about Trump in any kind of religious context. I think 
Actually, the most important thing about Trump in this respect is the least religious candidate that the Republicans have nominated in an awful long time. He didn't play to the traditional religious social conservative agenda, at least in the way in which we've understood the Republican candidates have done that in the past. What's interesting about Fionn is, is that he has made Catholicism and a certain agenda around that an important part of where he's politically standing and differentiating himself from the other candidates on the centre-right, not least his position on abortion. He's also, though, I think, a conventional French politician in this respect, in that sense he's not like Donald Trump either, in that he is laying claim to the Gaullist tradition in France, and that is a heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of the French state. He's combining it with more free market approach to various economic questions than has been the case in the past with um, Gaullist candidates. But I think if you looked at French politics in, in the 1970s and said, could it produce some, someone like Fillon? The answer is absolutely yes. He, he's part of a recognisable tradition. Whereas Trump, you wouldn't say you all. see him coming from anywhere. The only person I think you can say that Trump looks like in retrospect uh, is Pat Buchanan in 1992. Conceivably Ross Perot, but I think the Buchanan one is the only one that actually occupies that space. Okay, we're going to come back to this because I also want to talk to you about what you think this means for Fionn's prospects and, of course, the central question, which is what does this mean for the prospects of Marine Le Pen? But now to the other ultimate outsider-insider candidate, if that's the right way to describe him, Donald Trump, and not just a candidate now, president-elect, and my conversation with Gary Young, who was in Cambridge at the weekend to talk at the Cambridge Literary Festival. He and I did an event there together to discuss his new book, A Day in the Death of America, which is a harrowing read about the 10 young people who were killed by guns on a single day in 2013 in the United States, a typical day because about seven or more young people are killed every day in America. But Gary Young also spent the period before the US presidential election in Muncie, Indiana, otherwise known as Middletown, a typical American town which is famous because it was the subject of a study in the 1920s of what a typical American town looks like. And Gary Young tried to capture the view from Middletown of the Trump-Clinton contest. So I started by talking to him about that. We were in the Cambridge Union, which is a fairly posh old building, and our event was in the Union Chamber, and this conversation that you're about to hear was recorded in a kind of echoey antechamber. It sounds a bit like we're in church, but we're not. I asked him, first of all, the question that we're going to be asking everyone who comes on this podcast for the foreseeable future, which is about his experiences of election night. Where was he, and at what point did he realise that Trump was going to win? I started election night in the nights of Columbus with the Republicans in Muncie, uh, Indiana, a small town, about an hour away from Indianapolis, and I'd spent a month there covering the election. The Republicans were mostly cock-a-hoop about local elections. They won the governorship, they won the, the Senate race, which was supposed to be close. And at that time of the night, I left them probably about half past seven, eight, yeah, Trump, you know, I don't know. don't know if he's going to win or not. And then I went to the downtown farm stand in Muncie where there was an election party of four. Dave Ring, who runs a farm stand, which is a kind of organic food place in the downtown area, who I'd got to know quite well, and a few others. By the time I got there, there was this sense that things weren't going quite right. These were all people who wanted Hillary to win, or at least didn't want Trump to win. Most of them had voted for Sanders. And because of the number of places that weren't being called, you know, Pennsylvania, places that you would expect to be called, I would have left there by about 11, and it looked bleak. And they were very upset. And I went to the Fickle Peach, which is the pub around the corner, there, which is also a liberal crowd, they had started, started crying already. And it all felt very Brexity to me. It felt very familiar. Is this the country I thought it was? The unimaginable, you know, suddenly becoming a new reality. And that annoying thing of people on the television who hadn't seen it coming now telling us what we were seeing and telling us what we should expect and thinking, why would we listen to you exactly? What do you have to tell us? You've got everything wrong. In one of your pieces before the result that you wrote for Muncie, and we'll talk a bit about why you were there in a minute, you said that 
Republicans were kind of gearing up to be outraged about Hillary winning mm. in the sense that they, it sounded like they didn't really believe Trump could win. I mean, liberals obviously were in a state of shock, but did you get a sense on the Republican side, so like you said, they're focusing on the local races and then Trump might be a kind of bonus at the end of the night? How much shock was there, do you think, on the Republican side? I think they were quite surprised. I think they were quite surprised uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they'd been through this before with Romney, where they truly believed that Romney was going to win. They don't believe any of the mainstream media about anything anyway, so their lodestars are all very kind of um, impressionistic. So there was that. But then also, which wasn't entirely obvious from a lot of the reporting, was how ambivalent a lot of Trump voters were about Trump. Most of the Republicans that I met in Muncie didn't love him. They didn't even like him. And they would talk about him in terms of, well, obviously he's reprehensible, he's indefensible, and so on. But two things. First of all, it's quite tribal. And secondly, while they didn't love him, they really, really hated her. And why did they hate her so much? Because it's one of the questions that comes up a lot in this country. As you know, people sort of recognise that the dynamics of American politics are different. But the thing that hasn't kind of crossed the pond is how to understand the hatred of Hillary and particularly the kind of elitism that they think she represents? Well, some of it is that they really, really hate all Democrats, right? So if you think of... And the nature of that hatred changes depending on who the Democrat is. So think of how intensely they hated Obama and how many things they made up about him. He's a Muslim, not a reason to hate someone, but still, he's not really American. Anything but dealing with the guy himself. So there is that. If you go back to how much they hated Bill Clinton, which is what I would say about Obama, was this is not just about race. Think about all of the things they said about Bill Clinton, killing Vince Foster, all of that stuff. So there's that. The elitism thing, I think, is not really... shouldn't be that difficult to understand. You have this woman who has been in or approximate to power since '92 who has made, become a millionaire while being in public service and who assumed the crown. I mean, she then had to fight for it because of Bernie Sanders, but this is the second time she ran for the presidency and there was a, a sense of entitlement about her that many Democrats didn't like either. Then, of course, you have to add into that a degree of misogyny that there are things Hillary couldn't do that men could. And so one reasonable question I thought is, do you really hate her more than John Kerry? Like, what is, you know, really, what kind of, you know, what would it be about her Al Gore? But no, here's a woman whose husband was president, who is one of the names at the top of a million or billion dollar foundation, who is standing for the presidency for the second time, and then, and this is a material thing, you then have the trade issue. Muncie is a city that has lost half of its manufacturing base. So there are these huge, empty, you know, million square feet lots where there were once factories. People put that down to NAFTA, and they put NAFTA down to Bill Clinton, and there is, there is that too. None of that really captures the intensity and the intensity is partly about democratophobia, if you can call it that, they hate Democrats. And then some sense, some sense that she was crooked, that she wasn't playing by the rules, that different rules applied to her. And um, I don't think that was entirely fair. I also don't think she did herself any favours in that regard. And it is striking, as you said, you went, you went to three places on an election night. You, the Republicans, then the small Bernie group, and then the more mainstream liberal group. And Indiana was one of those places where Bernie Sanders was strong, um, and the trade issue obviously played into that. Is it your sense, when you were there during and after the election, that it did cost her, that she wasn't in the end able to, to pull some of the Bernie people behind her? Because obviously that was one of the fears, and then people assumed it would go away because it was Trump. But from what you say, it sounds like it didn't go away. There was one guy in particular that I tracked all the way through, Daniel Tulevitsky, who 
when I first met him, and I'd been there about three days, and he was going, oh, I'm going to vote for Jill Stein, I think, I know. And then he wasn't going to vote, and then and I caught him on election night in the Fickle Peach, and I was going, so what did you do then? And he wouldn't tell me for a long time. He voted Hillary. My impression, Jill Stein got a very small vote. My impression was that that was not her problem. Her problem was the Obama coalition showed out, but in every sense they showed out in weaker numbers. So when I looked at the precinct, you know, the particular polling places in Muncie that were strong Democrats, which was the African-American area and then other areas, university areas, the vote was down, so the turnout was down, and then her margins were down. In Trump areas, the vote kind of more or less held steady, and then his margins were up. And that's what did it for her. I mean, let's not forget in all of this, she did win the popular vote. She um, was within, you know, one or two percent in a number of states. Uh, Republicans have only won the popular vote once since 1988. So this was not some stampede to the right. This was a collapse of the Democratic vote and a Republican vote that held enough. So can we talk a little bit about what you were doing in Muncie? Because you wrote this great series of pieces about, not Muncie, but Middletown, this Mm. kind of mythic place because of the book that was written um, in 1924, I think, by the Lynns, these um, American academics who wanted to find an emblematic American town. One of the themes of the book that you touch on in your articles is that what they found was a town that they wanted to portray as having a kind of rhythm to it and a set of traditions that undercut the sort of febrile politics. Yeah. And it's, there's a sort of stability there. And as you say, some of this is a myth, but what they wanted to convey, there's a sort of stability to American life or a rhythm to it, mm. which doesn't track the rhythms of electoral politics, which make it seem much more volatile. Now, some of that is a myth, particularly on questions of race and division. But one of the things that you wrote, which really struck me, was that you were surprised when you first arrived how little people were talking about the election. Yeah. And that your phrase for it was, it wasn't so much anger as embarrassment. So did you get some of that sense, even leaving aside the bits where, the mythic bits, that a town like this, the sort of hysteria almost around this election, didn't quite tally with what you found on the ground? Well, the thing was that there there were people who were very animated and energised by the election, but they were on the margins rather than the mainstream, and that... Unlike, say, 2004, where everybody was kind of, you know, many more people were wrapped up in it. And that one of the senior Republicans said to me, you know, it's embarrassing, really, to think that these are the best two people we can come up with in the country. And similarly, for Democrats, many of them that I met, they just... Trump was embarrassing, I think, for everybody, even Republicans, you know. And I arrived just a few days after that tape. He was talking Mm. about grabbing women. But also Hillary was a bit embarrassing for some Democrats, and nobody really identified with either of them. Whereas, say, for George Bush, there was a large number, because of his religiosity, because of his bellicosity, there were a number of people who did identify with Bush. You didn't find many who identified with Kerry, really. So, yeah, people were just like, oh, this is just sort of sad and tawdry, and there was no joy or energy in it, which doesn't mean that there weren't some people who were energised, but they were very much marginal. And in order to keep the coverage going in a way that is engrossing and captivating, those marginal voices became mainstream. And so you got these kind of voices who were kind of, you know, quite shouty crackers. But you didn't really hear them mostly on the street. And did the people who weren't the enthusiasts, the embarrassed ones, nonetheless feel that this was a hugely important election? I mean, did they feel that a lot was at stake? Because there's this weird thing about Trump, which is, on the one hand, he's a candidate unlike any other. Mm. And on the other hand, this was a kind of regular election. The Republican won after eight years of a Democrat. Turnout was down. Like you say, there was no stampede or anything. Mm. And those are the two bits, not having been there, I find hard to reconcile. So did people sense, even though they weren't kind of getting as wound up as the press would like, that this was nonetheless an election, which a huge amount was at stake? They did, to the extent that most people that I spoke to thought if the other person won 
then the whole country would go to hell in a handbasket. So Republicans definitely felt like if Hillary won, and what you couldn't get to the end of was like, yeah, if Hillary won, then what? You know, how, how bad would it be? Given that you equate her with her husband, and they would talk about kind of globalism. It's a thing that Republicans kind of, you know, worry about. And um, somehow, anyway, there was this notion that this kind of gotty criminal family would be, you know, occupying the White House. Now, it wasn't as intense, that, as the fear of Obama and the notion of al-Qaeda taking over the White House, which is where some of them were, you know, or an illegitimate person taking over, a non-patriot. She didn't get that, but she got something else. And then the Trump people, it was like, oh, my God, you know, what what, what would... What does that say about it? if this man? And there was there was very legitimate fears. I think it was it was at least clearer to see what the fears were with Trump, the way that he'd attacked the press and called the press scum, the way that he had demonised his uh, opponents, all of them, <laughs> the way he'd threatened to put Hillary in jail, that he refused to concede whether he would accept the result of the election. There were a number of markers there that did not bode well for democratic norms. Violence at his rallies, the invocation of misogyny and racism. I mean, you know, one black guy at one of his rallies in North Carolina who was a Trump supporter who was kicked out and Trump called him a thug, and the crowd turned against him, thinking he was a protester. He wasn't. You know, so there's a difference between I don't like that candidate and violence at rallies. So anyway, so for the Democrats, there was this. This is not Mitt Romney. This is not John McCain. This is a moment of a different order. But the one thing that kept coming up again and again, uh, and I think in many ways it was a pivotal thing of the election, was this is a town, Muncie, with 30% poverty, as I said, half its manufacturing base gone, big heroin and crystal meth problem. Hillary was standing for Obama's third term. She was a status quo candidate. She not only didn't stand for change, she said, we're going on as as heretofore. What I heard a lot of people say about Trump was at least he's going to shake things up, which is true. (laughs) You know, I mean, um, he's different. She's the same. And I think that was the central, pivotal thing on which her candidacy kind of flailed. And we're in this odd moment now, you touched on it earlier, one of the things that's so weird about American presidential elections is on election night they call the result and then they carry on counting the votes. Mm. And they're still counting them now, so it changes every day. But she's two million ahead, I think, in the popular vote. It's about one, one point something percent. Mm. You know, the, what some people think is the kind of nightmare scenario clear popular vote winner, clear electoral college winner in some of these states. As you know, it's 1% and there's talk about a recount. So all, all the sort of question was, what would Trump do if Hillary won about the legitimacy issue? But now we've got a different kind of legitimacy issue. It hasn't come up much. But do you have any sense that the people who were really afraid, what does, what does this say about our country that this man is in the White House, mm. under these conditions that they will... I mean, there's not going to be kind of resistance, I don't think, but they will genuinely question his legitimacy. Is Is he their president? I think they will question his legitimacy, but not in the same way that people question Bush's legitimacy as to, like, you won a court case, you didn't win an election. I mean, for that to happen, I think things are going to have to get a lot closer in a lot more places. It's still possible at this stage, and I know that there's call for a recount in Wisconsin, I think, and, but he won by narrow margins in a lot of places, and so there would have to be a fear of significant irregularities in a number of places. But I don't think that a large... I think that the way that he conducted his campaign, for some people, rules him out as being their legitimate president, not because he didn't win but because he violated democratic norms in the process and because he, his campaign was so alienating, so exclusive and exclusionary. And you saw that within 48 hours, people were on the streets. And I think that this new normal, or new abnormal, really, is going to be people protesting the president wherever he is in a way that Bush 
if one remembers before 9-11, when Bush came to Europe, and wherever he went, there were huge demonstrations in Spain and elsewhere because he was a toxic Texan and he had executed so many people. Well, I think that there's a significant portion of the left that refuses to accept what comes with Trump. Not the vote, not the result necessarily, although some do, but the politics. And that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out because he's not a regular guy in a range of ways and people said well you know 48 hours give the man a chance but within a week you know he was talking about Steve Bannon being in part of his staff and so on that this is going to run and run and if one looks at you know Mike Pence goes to Hamilton to the show and he's booed I think we're going to get an awful lot of that Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the years to come. And in a way, the difference with this one compared to, say, some ones you talked about before, Bush and other, is I think people are aware there's a sequence coming up here which includes a nomination for the Supreme Court. Mm. He, he lost the popular vote. The Republicans lost seats in the House. They lost seats in the Senate. And yet he ends up with the, the full House, the sweep mm. of everything, and this extraordinary power that comes with the president when things are aligned. So it's this weird thing that the, all of these votes are tight, but the alignment has just made one bunch of people lose this yeah. and the other guy, you want it all. Yeah. And as that unfolds over the next six months or a year, I mean, like you say, we're at the beginning of this, but there are going to be points in the American political system and calendar where this is going to be really acute. You know, if he nominates someone for the Supreme Court who really does, for more than half of Americans, possibly represent the other side, there is going to be a legitimacy issue. Oh, no, I think that we'll be looking at very, very brief points when it's not going to be a question. I think that... He threw red meat to his base. I mean, so much red meat. I mean, they must have terrible kind of, you know, clogged arteries by now. And they're going to bust a vein if he doesn't deliver. And some of the things he can't deliver on. He can't imprison Hillary. He's not going to build a wall. He can't actually stop Muslims coming to the country. He can stop people from certain countries coming to the country. But he can't stop Muslims coming to the country. And then there are going to be these flashpoints. And actually, there's going to be a lot of them repeal of Obamacare, appointments to, I mean, Jeff Sessions already, who's this kind of racist Alabama senator, appointments to the Supreme Court, appointments to the Cabinet. There is nothing to suggest so far that he plans to lead in a consensual way. And I think therein lies the legitimacy problem. He didn't win most of the country, and most of the country don't like him. He did win the election as far as we know. And so how does he, in an incredibly polarised moment, with the crudest of majoritarian advantages, lead the kind of full-scale kind of revolution that he has espoused, coming back, you know, from Obama, which was a very different kind of style? How does he do that without there being a kind of massive revolt? And also there are these things that haven't happened yet, but that will happen. We know that the cops are going to kill more black kids because that's what they do. We know that black people are going to come out onto the streets when they do that. We know that there's already a million women's march planned for just after the inauguration. Events are not going to make any of this easier. It's a fair bet that there will be some kind of terror attack. So all of these things are going to place his polarising and exclusionary demeanour into sharp relief. So that then brings us onto your amazing and deeply moving book, uh, A Day in the Death of America, which is about gun violence and about kids, young people being killed. You're looking at one particular day, but it could be any day. So we've been talking about the headline noise of American politics, and there's quite a lot of violence around that, although there's, in a way, more talk about violence. 
than actual violence. So there is some real violence too. And then there were all these fears around what would Trump supporters do if Hillary won and so on. And then there's the kind of routine day-to-day violence of American life, which is a completely different story. And as you describe in your book, I mean, that's the real normalization problem. It's just taken as a fact of life. And then there's also the, the partisan divide that we've been talking about, and then the kind of divisions you describe in your book. And actually, it's a bit, you also write about it a bit in Muncie as well. Mm. Just parts of America living completely separate lives. I mean, just having no knowledge of each other, how they live. Mm. It's not even a question of sympathy. It's just they don't have experiences in common. It's one of the things I've always been fascinated by by America, how you reconcile the kind of surface noise. And, then, and it is that Muncie story. It's the Middletown story and the underlying. So on the violence question... Is there anything that's going to change the day-to-day violence story? And there will be these events, as you describe them, and, and they will rise up to the top and the news agenda and so on. But the, the grim story that you tell in your book, does Trump make that worse? Or does, or does it really not have any impact? Because that's not that kind of politics. It's a totally different kind of politics. The way in which it could make it worse is with Supreme Court appointments which liberalise even further gun ownership and economic policies which could further make people kind of deprived and a kind of rhetoric that undercuts what little empathy there is. I mean, these, all of these deaths are taking place under Obama. If Hillary had won, it's not like a huge amount would have changed in that regard. And to be fair and honest... Many of the issues that got them there are so intractable that what American working class need is a Marshall Plan. I mean, they're devastated. Black male life expectancy in D.C. is lower than male life expectancy on the Gaza Strip. You can't just have background checks and think that that is going to deal with the... You know, notwithstanding all of the problems around with the police, the deprivation the poor schools, the lack of jobs, the deindustrialization, the lack of youth services, all of that is not dealt with as a social matter, it's dealt with as a policing matter. So police are sent into these kind of, you know, underdeveloped, underdeprived areas, heavily armed, and told to control the despair. Well, you know, how do you think that's gonna, you know, pan out? The reality is an awful lot of that despair one can trace back to some of the things that happened in the Clinton years, that it was under Bill Clinton that African-American incarceration skyrocketed. It was under Bill Clinton that Glass-Steagall Act was repealed, making deregulation greater and the likelihood of um, an economic crash greater. Welfare reform. I mean, the one thing he did do was that was the last time there was a gun control bill was under Clinton, so there was that. So Trump's victory won't make anything better in that regard, and it could make things worse. The state that those areas are are in, the kind of policies that would be needed to make them better are big policies, not small policies. You can't cut and slice around those things. This is probably wishful thinking, I'm aware of this. Do you think there's any chance that given, as you said, what's needed is a Marshall Plan, and one of the things that Trump has said he will do is spend. Now, he's gonna, his spending priorities are not those. Mm. But the Democrats haven't gone away, and the Democrats may have moved to the left. Is there any way in which, if there is going to be big infrastructure mm. work done in the United States, it's possible to deal with the Trump administration in order to direct some of it in the areas that you're talking about. I mean, I, I, I get the politics is fearsomely complicated here and also none of this is going to play out how we might expect. Mm. But one thing that does look like there's going to be is significant government spending. Any way you see that coming out right for this? I think it's unlikely. Just because, apart from saying to African-Americans, what have you got to lose? You, you know, the places where you live are terrible anyway. There was no indication that that's where he was going. I mean, you know, the deficit ballooned under Bush and there was a lot of public spending, but mm. it didn't go in those areas, so... Mm. But is there any way that Democrats... Given the way the American system works, mm. and some of this is just going to be deal-making. Mm. Now, the assumption is it's deals between 
Trump and his base, mm. Trump and the rest of the Republican Party, but some of it is going to be deals between Trump and the Democrats. I mean, at the moment, he doesn't have to do with Democrats at all, barely. I mean, you know, he's got both houses of Congress, and Republicans are so polarised. I can only think of Olympia Snow from Maine as being one of a handful of Republican senators who might jump ship in terms of she didn't endorse Trump, she wouldn't vote for him. This may be A-level Marxism talking, but I imagine that there is going to be an immense amount of resistance from below to this whole thing. I don't think the Democrats are going to lead it. I think they're going to be pushed. And that, because while Obama and Hillary were saying, well, this is a result of all going accepted, people were out on the streets, people who did or didn't vote for it were out on the streets. In exactly the same way as the Tea Party made Obama's life hell, even though he had a supermajority and both houses, there was a limit to what he could do. And that pressure did not come from the Republican establishment. That pressure came from down below, and then they couldn't contain it. That I do imagine that there will be significant resistance that he will have to deal with in one way or another, but I doubt it's going to come from the Democratic establishment. There's nothing that they have done up until now, you know, under Bush or anywhere else. I mean, when Bush wanted torture, they rolled over, and he wanted war, they rolled over, they kind of, you know, they fear not their base, but the centre, which actually doesn't exist. So if he's going to be forced into making a deal, I think it's going to be forced out of the chaos. I don't think he's going to be forced within the chamber. Gary Young, whose book is A Day in the Death of America. Now back to Europe and to Helen and Chris. So let's come back to what might happen in France, because I think views differ now about Marine Le Pen's prospects. Some people believe that actually Fillon's nomination makes it less likely that she might come through in the complicated French system where you have a first round that produces two candidates. The assumption now is it will be Le Pen and Fillon. And that because he is further to the right than Juppé, he has squeezed some of her territory. The question is whether he's left the left open for her to hoover up some of those votes because part of her appeal is to traditional working class voters of the left and it's not clear that Fillon, particularly the Thatcherite Fillon, if that's what he is, speaks to those many millions of voters who may be tempted by the Front National. Chris, what's your sense of it? It's it's a trade-off, obviously, but does Fillon squeeze her or does he give her an opportunity? I'm worried that he gives her an opportunity. It allows... Marine Le Pen to double down as the secular defender of traditional French Republican values. The Front National is intensely Islamophobic, but they dress that up not in a religious language, but in a language of uh, the defense of French secularism. And Fillon is an easy person for her to position herself against in that regard. You already have a situation where Lots of working-class voters, lots of voters who traditionally vote for the socialists won't like Fillon's economic record, and they won't like his economic positioning at all. And Le Pen does have a workerist appeal. That's clear when you look at who's voting for her. And now she can position herself as the, the defender of some of the key values of the republic and occupy the territory that her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, was entirely unable to occupy in 2002. There, Chirac won a big victory by presenting himself plausibly as the defence of Republican values that cut across left and right in France against the insurgency from the far right. It'll be very, very difficult to pull off that kind of manoeuvre again against Marine Le Pen. I partly agree in the sense that I think that there's a clear space on the left on economic grounds for Le Pen to mop up votes and it was shown in the last European Parliament elections that she can do well in what have been traditional left-wing areas. In that sense she is going to kind of position herself oddly as a social democratic candidate in a contest with Fion given the economic positions uh, around freer markets that Fion has um, taken. At the same time though I think that Fion is a better defender of French Republican values than Chris is suggesting because he has firmly embraced a position 
of the French Republic as a singular entity. The idea that France is not a multicultural country, that is part of what defending French Republican values is meant. Now, that's complicated in relation to the way that sections of the left think about this question, but the indivisibility of the French people and the French state as a representative of the indivisibility of the French people is something that Fillon's in a pretty good position to articulate. And I think that is part of the reason why he won this contest against Juppé, who was much more wanting to present himself as somebody who says that multiculturalism is an important part of French politics and that that means an acceptance of various religions, including Islam. And that is the point where Fillon is going to defend himself significantly better against a Le Pen attack than Juppé would have done. And what about if this is a contest about Europe and France's role in Europe and in relation to the European Union? There was always a fear, I think, for many people that this contest, even if Le Pen didn't win it, would force whoever was up against her into positions that would be, in the long run, real hostages to fortune of Euroscepticism, essentially, maybe not offering a referendum, but at least flirting with the idea that France is going to distance itself from the EU. I mean, some people would think that's a good thing, but for the people who worry about the fate of Europe, which we'll come on to in a second, that was the fear. I mean, again, I'm asking this out of ignorance. Is this likely to be an auction in which the more Eurosceptic candidate wins? It may very well be, and it's hard to see Fillon winning that auction. I think Marine Le Pen has promised a referendum on the euro, which is an interesting bit of positioning, because on the one hand, there's no real mechanism within the existing EU for a country which has adopted the euro to divest itself of it. I mean, this was one of the questions that was swirling around in the Greek crisis of last year. But in a world where... It's harder to imagine French voters straightforwardly voting to leave the European Union in the kind of referendum we had in this country because everyone's looking at Britain and nobody wants to be Britain. Nobody wants to go through what we're going through. So she's channeling discontent towards the euro in a referendum that would create an extraordinary political situation. And it's difficult to see Fillon matching, it's difficult to me at least right now, to see Fillon matching that kind of promise. But if he doesn't match that kind of promise, then it becomes easy to paint him as the candidate who is compromised on Europe and as a candidate who isn't defending the kinds of positions that Helen was describing a moment ago about the sovereignty and the indivisibility of the republic and so on. He comes he can be made to look like somebody who's a bit too compromised with the unpopular aspects of the wider European order. So I do think this is another area where the political dynamics may tilt to Le Pen's advantage, but if she wins, it will create absolute chaos. I think that the problem for Fillon on this one is that he looks like a fairly conventional French politician, and that is is that for a long time, going back to the middle of the 1990s, is that the French establishment's political narrative about the European Union and about the euro in particular, or the impending euro as it was in the middle of the 1990s, is that what is needed is economic government as a counterweight to Germany's dominance of the eurozone and Germany's dominance, at least in principle, of the preferences of the European Central Bank. And the French project has essentially been to try to get the European Central Bank to pursue more growth-orientated policies and to do that by having some sense of political control over the European Central Bank. That is what pretty much every French Prime Minister, every French President has been trying to do since the Eurozone began. The thing now is is, is that that is essentially the position that Fion is now taking, is saying that what we need is, is more political control over monetary policy. But actually, this political battle has been won in some sense, because the European Central Bank is not any longer the Bundesbank writ large. It is a a bank, a central bank that has you know, pursued quantitative easing against German preferences for the last few years, and it's not making any difference. It's not making any difference to the French economy. The French economy is still stuck with pretty much the same problems that it's had since the 1980s, which is that it has high unemployment and it has a low labour participation rate and all kinds of other problems follow from that. And even if it is possible for the French to get what they want, more of what they want, I should say, in terms of the economic policies that ensue within the Eurozone, it isn't going to make any difference, it would seem, to the economic and political problems that France faces. So in that sense, anything that Fillon articulates in this space sounds hollow. And in that sense, I think that Le Pen is going to be able to mobilise a pretty effective argument about the way in which the French political establishment has dealt with the particular problems that the Eurozone gives to France. As you've said, Helen, it's not entirely in their control either. Nothing is in anyone's control in politics these days. But we have this vote coming up in Italy at the weekend, which could trigger 
a sequence of events that puts the euro in particular and therefore the European Union under real pressure by the time the French election comes around. Uh, we're going to discuss this in much more detail next week when we know the result of that referendum. But I just want to talk a little bit about something I was very struck by this week, which was The Economist's editorial on the Italian referendum. The Economist is encouraging Italian voters to vote no, that is to reject what Renzi is offering, a series of constitutional reforms which would essentially centralise power within the Italian state and remove some of the, if you want to put it politely, checks and balances, and if you want to put it impolitely, barriers and hindrances in the way of executive action. The constitutional issues are complicated, but the risks are fairly clear as well. If the referendum results in a no vote, Renzi has promised to resign. That could lead to elections, almost certainly will lead to elections, could lead to a loss of economic confidence and so on. I want to read you the last paragraph of The Economist editorial and just see what you think. So this is The Economist speaking, and The Economist is always the anonymous voice of the magazine. Who knows who wrote this? Maybe an intern wrote this. What then of the risk of disaster should the referendum fail? Mr Renzi's resignation may not be the catastrophe many in Europe fear. Italy could cobble together a technocratic caretaker government as it has many times in the past. If, though, a lost referendum really were to trigger the collapse of the euro, then it would be a sign that the single currency was so fragile that its destruction was only a matter of time. And I was just struck by how sanguine that was for the economist. It doesn't normally kind of throw its hands up and say, well, if catastrophe is coming, bring it on. Helen, do you, do you have any sympathy with that point of view? Not really, despite the fact that in, in the long term, I think that the demise of the Eurozone is quite probable. And that is just because there has to be some means of dealing with the problems that will ensue for the Euro, because the Euro is not going to dissolve quickly, and for banks across Europe, if this referendum not only results in a no vote, but results in immediate carnage, if you like, in the financial markets. There simply is no mechanism by which the Euro can be got rid of, destroyed, whatever verb that the uh, economist wants to use in a, either a quick or unchaotic way. It is embedded into the very nature of the European Union and it's embedded into the ways in which all the economies of the Eurozone function. So there has to be a lot more caution in thinking about what the consequences of an Italian no vote were. If it immediately translates into a Eurozone crisis, then what the consequences of Brexit were. It would make Brexit look like a picnic in comparison. I suspect that what The Economist is really saying is they'd like a technocratic government uh, rather than the euro to collapse. And of course, Italy has had technocratic governments in the past, but this isn't so straightforward. I don't know how long there would be a technocratic government, but there would have to be elections. And Italy, of course, is facing its own populist revolt, the Five Star Movement. I was reading in the newspaper today that the Five Star Movement is facing the challenge that lots of populist movements do in that it has now won power in various places, including in Rome. And the mayor of Rome is struggling to actually be a mayor. Um, so this it's complicated in that the Five Star Movement hasn't got a straightforward path to government because people are starting to notice what it does when it governs, which is, as Trump's going to discover, fall back on some of the old ways of doing politics. Chris, do you have a sense of this? I mean, where are we between the collapse of the euro, technocracy and populism? It's, it's confusing. It's very confusing indeed. Um, you're, you're right about the Five Star Movement winning the mayoralty in Rome. I wonder how much resonance that has outside Rome. The, it's, it's an important post in municipal government, but it's a post in municipal government. And um, When you call it municipal government, that more or less kills the excitement. <laughs> so I, I'd be cautious at thinking that the, the relative failure in Rome will damage the five-star movement brand nationally, which in any case has always not been a brand about running things efficiently in the conventional ways. It's a very unorthodox kind of political movement that gets its support in very unorthodox ways. That's partly why some very unorthodox stories about spreading Russian fake news are now attaching themselves to it. So I'd be cautious about thinking that the usual kinds of factors that might sink normal political parties apply in this case. What we've had over the last year and a half is a world in which the usual political rules just don't seem to apply. And hovering in the background is Silvio Berlusconi. I mean, that's the other extraordinary thing about this. A lot of the scenarios play out with Berlusconi returning to government, maybe in coalition with Renzi, maybe on his own. And that's the other thing I find bizarre about The Economist line, because The Economist, one of the things it, it was known for for about 15 years was trying to get rid of Berlusconi to the extent of running cover stories saying this man is not fit to govern. 
And one of the consequences of a no vote is likely to be the return of Berlusconi to government. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's a bit too easy to try to fit this Italian referendum into the narrative, if you like, of 2016. There are a number of ways in which it is different. And one of them is, is that one of the two main political parties, in this case Berlusconi's party, is actually in favour of the no vote in the referendum. This is not a case where all the main Italian parties have lined up in favour of an establishment position and then you're having an insurgency against that. Of the three main Italian parties in terms of who's represented in the Italian parliament, two of them are on the no side, one of them is Berlusconi's party. And I think that although people are arguing that or suggesting that the Five Star Movement would be the beneficiaries of an election precipitated by a no vote in the referendum, that isn't so obvious, particularly when you look at the electoral law that was passed a few years ago in Italy. It's just as likely, if not more, that Berlusconi would be the beneficiary of it, as you say. And I think as well, a general election in Italy that gets focused on the euro is going to force the Five Star Movement into a difficult dilemma in relation to how it actually plays the euro issue because although the outcomes of the eurozone are very unpopular in Italy unsurprisingly since Italy's GDP per capita is actually less now than it was at the beginning of Italy's membership of monetary union then there is not actually significant support for the end of Italy's membership of the euro actually by a quite significant majority Italians still want to be in the Eurozone. They want the Eurozone to work very differently than it does and to produce different outcomes for Italy. And I think that is just as impossible, actually, ultimately, as the Greek hope that they could sort of stay in the Eurozone and it would work out differently from them. But that is still where the centre ground of the Italian electorate is. And the Five Star Movement, if it's forced into an election that is about the Euro, is going to run into that reality. Next week, we will discuss this when we know the result. Uh, The Economist has a pretty consistent track record of backing the wrong horse by telling people to vote one way and then they vote the other. It spent about 15 years telling them not to keep Berlusconi in power and he stayed in power. Spent a lot of time telling its readers that Brexit would be a disaster. It spent a lot of time telling its readers that Trump would be a disaster. I suppose what's odd about this one is that it's put itself on the side of the people for once. So maybe this time it'll back the winner. We will see next week. Do join us then. Uh, do please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We will link there to the various articles that we've talked about in this week's podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.